Hello and welcome to another in our Oscars edition of our Conversations with Sound Artists podcast. I'm Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute. And today we're focusing our conversation on Blade Runner 2049, which like all the films in in, in both categories this year is nominated for both the Sound Editing and the Sound Mixing Academy Awards. And I am really thrilled that we have the entire all of the nominees for Blade Runner 2049, uh, <clears throat> at least around the table or virtually with us. So um, we have um, uh, in the sound editing category, Mark Mangini uh, and, and Theo Green. Hi. And in the sound mixing category, uh, Ron Bartlett, Doug Hemphill. Good morning. And uh, Skyping in from Budapest, Mac Ruth. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> So uh, I just wanted to start off by asking you guys, the original Blade Runner, 1982, uh, directed by Ridley Scott, is such an iconic film. Um, and I think, you know, when people, and it's, and it's obviously, it's, it's earned its spot as a classic, you know, science fiction film and has influenced a generation of filmmakers. But I think when most people think about the original film and, and think of it in, in terms of its sort of groundbreaking uh, iconic status, they think about it visually, they think about production design, they think about um, the cinematography. But for me, it's, it was equally groundbreaking in terms of its its sound design and its score and the way the track came together and specifically kind of the, the blending of sound design and music. So I just wanted to kind of put the question to the group, like how do you approach revisiting such an iconic film? Uh, you know, was there sort of a pressure to kind of emulate the original work or how do you how do you pay homage to it but do your own thing well I, I will say before Mark speaks that some of the fans we've heard from about the Blade Runner 2049 they share the same feelings that they had with the first film so I, I feel like we've done something very successful in that we it's a mood and a feeling and a tone that's been creative that has carried the original track forward and I think done some some new wonderful things actually yeah Denise, certainly one of Denise's um, mandates for Theo and I um, was to honor the first film without copying it. So Theo and I spend a good deal of time deconstructing the first film to kind of try to figure out what made it tick. And um, among other things, we discovered that um, the film in many scenes is replete with these kind of designed musical atmospheres many of which it turns out Vangelis had actually composed, but you think of them more as the sound design of the scene. And so we realized that one of our first challenges was to emulate that, to use that as a model for the sounds that we would, we would create for the film, embedding every scene in these kind of atmospheric musical textures uh, so that it felt like the first film. And so that was, and Theo, you, you can, pick up on that, uh, that was sort of one of our first sound design challenges. And of course, one of the things that made it easier, it was not such a straight sequel to the first film, but something, in a sense, it's a standalone film that takes place in the same universe, partly because it takes place 30 years on from the original. So that gave us quite a leeway to, I mean, obviously things look different. The spinner car has evolved 30 years on, the, the blaster gun, and, and certain other iconic things that we think of as producing iconic sounds from the first film. Um, we got the license to evolve and transform those sounds and make them our own. But the difficult thing, I guess, was just making it feel as if it belonged in that same universe and that it truly had evolved from the Blade Runner universe that we, that we know and love. 
The fortunate thing for Doug and I is we were able to work on the final cut version for Ridley. So we did a restoration on the original. That was about, what, six, eight years ago? It was eight years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys about that because so so Ridley, Scott went back and did theoretically the final cut of, 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 the, <laughs> right. of the original. Of the original <laughs> later. continued, maybe? Yeah. So, so Ron and Doug, you guys had worked with him on that. So what was that process like? Kind of just, you know, what were the what shape were the original elements in? What, well, and what did, you, what did you guys do in 2007? That, that, that begs the question, which I, I bet a lot of people out there are wondering, what's it like to go to work each day with Ridley Scott and work on Blade Runner? We got to hear stories of his, you know, when he was working on it that were just absolutely amazing what he went through to create that film. Yeah. And it was a real struggle. We were literally sitting on the Warner Brothers lot and he's like, we shot it right over there. And we yeah. telling all these stories. It was so, you know, visceral because we were sitting right there and yeah. he's telling us about how, you know, when the, they were shooting that last scene, you know, with the uh, Rutger Hauer and the tears in the rain. Oh, it's so literally they, like you know, 100 yards from us. You know? And he's a man of enormous confidence, obviously. So for, for Ridley, it was like, I need to get rid of this narration. I want it out. Yeah. So that was one of our main tasks. And also to say, I, I know Ron feels the same way. When we do, Ron has done several restorations on Kubrick films and whatnot. When we approach a restoration of a soundtrack like the original Blade Runner, we want to keep the authenticity and tone that that film originally had. Even if some of the track is a little naive or whatever, that's part of the ethos of that movie. So we want to keep that intact. That's how we approached it. Was the original, was that a 5.1 mix or was it just a, was it just a, a, a two track? You know, it was, uh, I think it was a 424, yeah. the original. Yeah, so was, I don't think he had stones. And we were dealing with three three mixes. Yeah. Uh, to, to my knowledge, the three mixes that we had were the British uh, mix done in, in London, uh, what was called a new art mix and then a Skywalker mix. So we were taking those three mixes and creating the non-narration mix for Ridley. Most of that was from printmasters. It was not elements where you get to, oh, great, we'll just turn off the narration. No. You, you did not have access to even really stems or... or, or Very or little. Yeah. There's a couple of things we had, a few stems, but most of it was printmasters from different mixes. So how did you, having gone through that experience of working with Ridley uh, in 2007 on the original restoration, how did that, did that change your perspective going into Blade Runner 2049? Well, but we were, we were fans of Blade Runner before working. So for us, it was, it was win, win, you know, we're fans to start with, then we get to work on this film to boot. Right. And then bizarrely, out of the blue, Denis calls us to work on Blade Runner 2049. So it's it's actually a very strange chronology. And you guys had none of you guys had worked with Denis Villeneuve before, is that? No, is that just right? just been a fan. So how did this team come together? Well, it starts with Theo, yes. um, which is an important story. I think I think it's 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 this is a really important sort of a yeah. point to make in our in the sort of evolution of of sound for yeah, film. I mean, Denis did something very unusual. I'd, I'd met Denis first um, at a screening of Arrival, a test screening of Arrival, as I've worked with his editor, Joe Walker, a few times before. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I normally restrain myself and don't go completely uh, gushing to, to a director after you, something. but did, uh, you, did you fanboy out? I, I did, I completely, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really embarrassed myself. <laughs> Um, and you know, I told him, I think this is this is the, the style of sci-fi I've been waiting for all my life. It, it feels gritty and real, but it's you know, it's telling a story that's effectively something that Hollywood has approached before. But it's always you know, it goes in a different way. It's it's 
a different style when Hollywood approaches a, a movie like that. He he sort of brought his Canadian indie sensibilities. French Canadian. Yeah, <laughs> French Canadian. Sorry. Yeah, Quebecois. Yeah. Exactly. Quebecois <laughs> sensibilities. But he know. definitely thinks of himself as an independent filmmaker. Yeah, he definitely absolutely. does. And um, so, so I'd met him there, and when Joe Walker started working on um, Blade Runner, again something interesting happened there in that. Um, Joe Walker was brought on um, and was set up with an editing room in Budapest as they started the shoot. In fact, before they started the shoot, um, he was consulting, looking at the storyboards with them and, you know, trying to decide what things might be a problem later. And and it was Denis and Joe who had the, the prescience to think, what if we bring a sound designer on, you know, during production rather mm. than it being a post-production thing? Um, when you've got a universe that has so much world building involved, something where it's uh, an alternate universe or something where, you know, obviously... Things don't exist. Things that don't exist are, are taking place on an everyday basis, like flying cars or... Yeah. Um, baseline machines. Baseline machines and, I mean... It, I got a lot of questions about the baseline. <laughs> testing, <laughs> testing procedure, by the way, but that's another subject. It's we'll a House of Institute yeah. exercise. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that became like a... I guess a way, in, instead of Joe always working with um, off-the-shelf effects or, you know, putting in the sound of a vacuum cleaner or something for to make up for sure. the sound of a spinning car, um, the idea was, why don't we start developing the sound at the same time as they're first looking at the images, which I believe Denise said is something that had been like a long-term dream mm. of his to... He'd been hoping to do that on his very first shorts and first features, but there was never the budget there to cover right. um, bringing people who are traditionally thought of as post-production on during production. Right, because there's a perception that, like, you know, I think a lot of uninformed producers would think, well, that's just going to cost me a lot more money because I'm carrying those people for that much longer. But and There it is. But I know from conversations with you, it actually was a, it was a fairly small, tight crew that worked on this film. So I, to me, the argument is like, you're actually, you're redistributing the money, but spending it much more s smartly. Well, I think you, I think you save money because when you get down to that choke point at the end, and when you're at the end of a movie, it is a choke point. Sure. Yeah. That's it, everything piles up right there. The work that, let's say, Theo has done ahead of time is gonna save you money right. at that choke that, point. That's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also that thing of, you know, um, it's just an artificial separation for a director to, be getting intimate with the images that he's captured um, on set and and editing them for months and months and then suddenly at the end of the process along come the sound team and contribute something which ultimately can change things so much that the editor can start wishing that he'd cut it differently and yeah. I mean it's um, it's being able to feed in a part of the process that much earlier so that they can start making decisions and there were certain scenes where we'll talk about them later maybe but um, there were certain scenes where you know, I think the scenes would have been cut if it wasn't for an idea that came either from Joe Walker's editing early on oh, or from the sound design. Um, so yeah, that was the idea, was to get someone working alongside Joe and Denis right from the get-go. So you were you were actually in Budapest? Yeah, I went out to Budapest in, uh, I think it was late August or mid-August in 
2016, met Matt Ruth. Well, that's actually busy that's, recording. That's actually that's actually a nice segue into uh, into including uh, Mac in the conversation. So Mac, you know, this is it's actually pretty rare that we're able, able to have conversations with the post production team and the production sound mixer. So for those listening in, who you know, our audience is pretty tech savvy, but we also have some film fans. So Mac, tell us a little bit about your job. So you're you're on the set recording with you know, while the cameras are rolling with the with the actors. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that process worked on Blade Runner. And you guys shot mostly in Budapest and in Europe, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it worked out as a, a, a really traditional style of shooting. Roger Deakins and Denis together, they, they were just a fantastic team. And Donald Sparks, first AD, the way they ran it, it was, you know, in-camera effects, Lots of uh, practical special effects. All the lighting effects were practical. Um, it was basically a one camera movie with infinite attention to detail on that, on that shot, which allowed us to do very, almost sometimes unique thing. And that is we really got a chance to focus on traditional camera perspective sound using the booms. And, and I think it really shows up at, at some level. Uh, it's a very psychoacoustic reality, a very psychoacoustic thing that you, you feel that, that, that's different if it's, if it's not there. And uh, I think to be part of that team uh, on set, to work in, with very traditional methods, uh, yeah, no, we had obviously all of the, you know, the rather new school communication systems, which allowed things to happen like the baseline test and the glass, the hermetically sealed sets and communication systems so, so that we can motivate performance on set. There's a lot of that. And that's part of the creative process on set. But the, the recording itself was very traditional and we're very proud of, uh, of it and the opportunity to be there with those kind of uh, traditional, you know, filmmakers with such foresight. It's, it's been actually fantastic. It's fantastic, I think. <clears throat> were there any... Um that stand out in your memory, any particular scenes that were that posed really uh, difficult challenges for you uh, to, to record on this particular film? Wow. Um, you know, we could, you could point to the practical things like the effects, the stuff in the rain. Uh, you know, some of those things are, are always, they, you know, they create their own signal to noise ratio issues, don't they? <laughs> but uh, it's, it, it was, um, all in all, you know, you're given the best chance when, when, when an actor, when a director and a team really knows the performance they're looking for and they know where to place their resources. And uh, we were basically, you know, there to allow the actors to facilitate themselves through the scene and to capture performance. I, you know, I don't even call it sound anymore, audio on set. I say we're, you know, we're losing actor performance or I call it, I call it actor performance. And that's what we're there for. And there's, you know, your normal workflow stuff like reliability and how you do it and methodology. But uh, I think we're there. And that, I, to be allowed the opportunity to do such a good job uh, is, is, is a real privilege. That's great. Well, I think it's probably very clever that you figured out to do that. Because if, you just, if you're the sound guy and you say, hey, I'm not getting good sound, that probably rings much lower alarm bells than if you say, I'm losing actor performance. Mm. <laughs> we love you, Mac. That's beautiful. Yeah, we do love you. <laughs> and so... I've um, trademarked that. There you go. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so then, Mark, how did you get involved in the film? Um, I 
got a call while I was in London from Alcon asking if I wanted to meet with Denis. And that came about because Theo and Joe and Denis, or not, I didn't know, you guys had just screened Mad Max, or just had seen it. And I guess you felt that that, that the, the style, that approach was the right approach for for Blade Runner. And they thought, well, let's have Mark in. And, and so I flew to Budapest for three hours. <laughs> and I had to do a pitch in front of the entire crew. Roger Deakins and 200 members <laughs> stopped what they were doing on a soundstage to listen to Mark do his used car salesman version of this is why sound is important to a movie. You must, you must have been pretty impressive. I, I cringed when I walked away from that. <laughs> but I then had the good fortune to go back to the editing room and sit with Joe Walker and, and um, watch some scenes and uh, talk about the movie and my approach. And I think that's where I really found a, a sort of a... Uh, a kindred spirit there, and I think we saw eye to eye about what he and Denis wanted. Well, I think it, yeah, and it it, it bears pointing out that uh, that Joe it, it used to cut sound, so he's I an think... extraordinarily gifted sound editor and composer. Yeah, amazing. Well, he I... plays in. I don't think anyone knows. He plays that little Chopin motif. Uh, um, Brahms. The, a Brahms motif in the desert that lures Kay into the casino. Really? Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk with you about, about that because, you know, obviously Joe has a composition and sound editing background. Theo, you're, you, you're known also as a composer. Yeah. So there's a lot. I, I'm really interested in this cross-pollinization of, of, of music and sound design in this specific film, which I think very appropriately echoes back to what you were talking about with the Vangelis track on the, on the original. So, how, you know, wearing all those different hats and how did you guys decide, like, and, and, and especially in working with uh, Hans Zimmer uh, and um, Ben Walfish, like, how did you guys decide... What elements are coming from which department, and and keeping you know keeping everything moving forward? Because Hansen and Ben didn't come in until late in the process. Right. I think to to answer that last question first, Denis really orchestrated that. Um, he really encouraged Theo and I to do this sound composition work. That was an early exhortation to us. But I think he had it in his head because we didn't really interact with Hans or Ben. They they came on late in the piece. And, uh, but Theo and I were set free very early on to begin the compositional work in a very freeform way uh, to create these musical textures. Well, I would add too, Mark, it's important for people out there to realize that I think for Denis, it wasn't music and sound. No, it's, no. it's just sound in the movie that tells the story. That's all. That's all he ever saw it as. And I think that's one of our really groundbreaking achievements in this film is that we strove to have it feel as though this is just the sound of Blade Runner, it's like one soundtrack. You know, normally you think of the soundtrack as the, the music to a movie, but we are a sort of unified soundtrack. It's, exactly. we, all we contributed was, that's what you should hear at this moment in the film. And it was always that sort of narrative-driven idea that, that inspired Theo and I and these guys to sort of how, how we crafted and you know, found our way through the movie. So because, and because the, the sound design is so musical and because Ben and Hans came in so late, what were the conversations with them around like, was there sort of a, like a, you know, did they have specific moments that they were focusing on or how, yeah. how did they kind of fit in with yeah. what you guys have been I doing? Was, I mean, part of this comes from the way that Joe and Denise see it as if you're going through an editing process and you're either temping in music or you've got a composer kind of composing for each scene, 
it sort of functions almost as a crutch for that scene. Perhaps you're not um, focusing on the mechanics of the scene and the plot as closely as you should. It's sort of a, it's a, a balm that makes everything feel better. Um, and in, in many ways, I think their idea was to, to have sound provide what score normally does in terms of sort of guiding us, giving us hints, um, helping thematically connect different parts of the film. And then, as Joe um, brilliantly puts it, sort of use the composer's score to bring in the cavalry for those moments where it's really, really needed. And that can, that's something that can come in later in, in the process. So I think we had, to some extent, already defined um, mm -hmm. the areas where the score would be needed. And they, you know, we'd sort of backed off on the sound on those moments, knowing that right. something big was going to be coming in there. And that's a function of... Denise Prescience of starting Theo as early as he did and then bringing me on as early. I came on far earlier than a traditional supervising sound editor would come on. And those early months for me were pure design time to create with Theo all these fantastic textures uh, that we made that would have been thought of or are, maybe are thought of as, as music. And I think one of the highest compliments I've received in the various lectures and discussions we've had about the film is that uh, audience members has come up and said, I couldn't tell where the boundaries were. I think that's the highest compliment we could have been paid. I agree. Can you guys tell the story as an example of how Denis works with music of Kay's Walk in the Las Vegas Desert, how that started Ron, out? Ron sat in that hot seat. That's your story, it's my a, friend. <laughs> it's a great story. Uh, early on, they were Hans and Ben were told to deliver wide stems, so everything was separate. It wasn't a traditional, like, here's all the synth stuff, here's the orchestral stuff, here's the strings, whatever. Sure. It it was all the synth tracks. So I, I would get a whole bunch of, like, left-right, you know, stereo tracks uh, to pick from. And it's not like we arbitrarily went, oh, I like that, let's put it in. Obviously, we looked at the entire piece, saw its intent, and then we would play all the tracks for Denis and say, you know, how's this playing? What do you like? And we would pick through ones that, you know, he was not a fan of the more modern sounds, uh, some of the newer synth sounds. So he would say, typically he'd say, that's such a great sound, but not in my movie. Because <laughs> he really loved it, you know, but he would just take it out. And inversely, I don't, I'm not going to interrupt your story, but a lot of what Ben was doing was also something you could have considered as sound design. It wasn't necessarily oh, yeah, musical. Absolutely. So we always had this crossover.
yeah. continue with your story. Yeah, there were sounds like we called it the motorcycle sound. There was, I the seagull. <laughs> or the seagull. Were you talking, you're talking like, so I, I watched the film again, and like the and some of the Los Angeles city soundscapes, there's this, what sounds like a really loud um, engine revving. Is that's, that what yeah, you talking that's, about? Yeah, that's the score. That's, that's the score. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, I thought that was you guys. That's, exactly. That's, right? that's yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. thing. You know, yeah. we never knew what was what. He's getting credit for things we did, too. Yeah. So let's be clear. <laughs> there were times I had solo so I'm like, oh, that's mine. I thought that was Doug's. Because you guys normally, you know, you're working on uh, you're working on effects. Yeah, but we're all musicians. Everybody here is right. a musician. Oh, that's fascinating. And I got to say, you know, in, in reference to what you were talking about earlier, human beings are wired as musical creatures. We respond to musical sounds. So if you're a sound effects uh, designer or whatever, and you design from a musical point of view, you'll reach more people with tonality mm -hmm. and emotion. Period. You will reach more yeah. people. So you were you were telling the story about Kay walking in the desert. Oh yeah. So there's this big queue that goes there and. They had written all this beautiful music that, you know, went from him starting to walk from the car all the way to the bees and the whole section, right? It's a three-minute cue or so. We played it, and Denise like, okay, let's start going through the, the list and say, yeah, no, maybe not. No, I'll take that out. I like that one, but no, let's do We just kept eliminating everything. And I'm like, I'll back up a little bit. There was um, a moment uh, halfway through our final or so where we were told by the... Uh, legal department that we couldn't use any sounds from the original. And we, did. And we had and we had we had certain sounds that were like a nod to the original. Yeah, that, that was really cool, right? Yeah, yeah, you would want to have a little some Easter of, egg, a little little yeah. Yeah, some of them were the spinner sounds, you know, elements of that, and there were all these big drum hits that, you know, the big classic bah, like that. that you think from it from the like original. the opening yeah, uh, montage yeah, of Blade Runner, from, right? Right. I had taken those from the first film blown them out to 7-1, and that's what Ron started with. Yeah, and then Mark calls me at 9 o'clock at night. and goes, I just got a call. We have to get rid of all those sounds. You're a drummer and a percussionist. Can you play and record some tonight and bring them in? And I said, sure thing. I, so I stayed up till like 3 in the morning playing all these drums and recording stuff in my home studio. And I mastered them all in 7-1, brought them in the next morning, and started putting them through the whole movie where they were, you know, replacing everything, yeah. including the very first sound in the film, yeah. you know, yeah. the opening title. Right. Uh, so back to the Vegas walk, those were huge drums in that, and we had deleted everything else. I said, okay. I said, Denis, all I got left are the drum hits. He says, well, play it. See how it goes. We hit play, and we sat back. It was like... Boom! And then nothing. It's like this light wind and footsteps. It was so creepy. We all went, oh, wow. <laughs> it was really cool. This is way more eerie. Yeah, yeah that's, right? that's when mixing is the most fun. When you've got a bunch of people together and suddenly something like that happens. And everybody in the room 
knows that it's happened. Yeah, well, there's, I, I, I love that story because there, there, and we've all experienced that there's that magic moment of alchemy that can mm-hmm. happen when you put just the right sound effect or the right music on a scene and suddenly it's a movie. It's not, it's and not. It, it's yeah. so sparse, but so effective, you know. It's such a quiet scene. And it's one of the things, wasn't it, is that, the, yeah. that we got to really highlight the dynamics by having such an enormous boom and then it just tails down to Nothing. a whisper. It's, it's a by, footstep. by far the most dynamic movie I think any of us have worked on yeah. as far as that goes. Well, I want to ask you guys about that. And I, I had the pleasure, I probably, what, a little over two years ago to do a, a, a talk back at the L.A. Film Festival with uh, Denis and, and, um, and Joe Walker. Uh, we, screened, we screened Arrival and, had a, a, and I had a conversation with the two of them about it um, in front of an audience. And in kind of preparing for that, I went back and I watched all of Denise's films. And the thing that was really popped out at me immediately, especially when, you know, looking at a movie like Sicario, yeah. like this, I, I, I recognize immediately, this is a director who knows how to use sound to tell a story. So what was it like working with him? Did he, you know, did he challenge you guys in, to, in some areas that really pushed you? What, you know? what, I, what I loved about him is that he would just let you work. Yeah, he'd let you create something and put it all together, expecting that you would bring your A game to the. And that's project. that's the best feeling in the world to to have somebody who trusts you to that extent. Uh, obviously, he's a great artist, and to have an artist like that who says, "I want to see what you bring to my project," that's a real honor. It's it's yeah, and of, of course he would guide us and say, "Okay, let's go this way or that way," and he had his ideas as well, and we would always, you know try to find exactly what his vision was in the scene or you know he would give us a few quotes that were awesome like at the seawall he would say i want this to be an operatic theme that goes through the entire thread as one piece Mm -hmm. so you keep that in mind as we were mixing to make that you know like never you know but pull your foot off the pedal but at the same time just to give some perspective this was not an over overly talkative crew right this is a crew that this is the show me crew so we're we're always like well let's just do it and see what happens and then we would respond there wasn't a lot of overall. not a lot of sitting around talking about no Denise the, the I mean, he's what, obviously the of what you're doing. you know he's obviously a very bright man and he expects you to be the same he's not going to explain something to you you know it's more of like we're working intuitively um, I don't know if that makes sense but. no it totally does and I, I, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk with you guys about because I've certainly been on a lot of final mixes you know usually by that point that the director has been living with his or her film for years at that point and maybe it doesn't quite have the same impact as for them as when they first started with the project and it i I have seen it happen many times that their gut reaction when they finally get to the final mix stage is just to turn it up you know that that's the only thing that's going to jolt them out of their chairs anymore so but the thing with Denis, I, I love the silent moments and the quiet moments. And you talked about the dynamic range in this film. And I, I would love to, you know, there's so many great um, uh, m- moments. There's that, the, you know, the, the walk in the desert. But there's also, you know, the, the sound design in some of those moments, the quiet moments is so specific and so beautiful. I, when I watched the film again, I was thinking about like uh, this, that first scene after, you know, uh, the character, uh, the holographic character, uh, uh, Joy, kind of is liberated and they go up to the roof and the rain oh, and, the, and the rain hitting her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's this really beautiful and, and very quiet, but really specific sound design. Sun-sail. 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 
That discussion I mentioned earlier that I had with Joe in the editing room was all about silence and how we would handle silence and what was my approach for silence. And that, that's, you know, if that's the first conversation you're having with your filmmakers, it's pretty exciting because it's clear that we'll get to the big moments. And in some ways, the big moments are the easiest to do. I mean, you ask a film editor, they'll all say action sequences are, are the easiest things to cut. Yeah. So too, I think, for sound and mixing and design and editing, the big sequences will handle themselves. But how do you sell silence without actually doing silence? You don't want to go to all zeros, you know, in the digital soundtrack. But that's confidence. Some, somebody who can deal with silence. But it, it's movie. reflected in his edit as well. His edit is very languid. He's very secure and letting a shot go on a lot longer than what's traditional in, in Hollywood filmmaking. He had that same confidence in his use of sound. And we exploited that to, to you know, an incredible degree, I think, in our design as well as our, our mix philosophy. That's a good point because like most audience members or people that don't know much about sound, but they love movies, they'll see an action movie and go, wow, the sound on that, that was so much sound. It's not what a, they're saying was it was a lot of sound. It's a lot yeah. of it. But <laughs> Our award is for best sound, not most sound. Right. <laughs> That's the key. That's, That's a great point. <laughs> yeah. All those details and that subtlety and all that, those are the hardest moments to do. Because yeah. the rain, for example, we took a specific approach to the rain. When they're on the roof, for me personally, it was Kay is finally going to have a romantic moment. Right. This, this, this guy deserves this moment. <laughs> so, and it was, you know, it was very delicate. So we played the rain in a very delicate way because it was beautiful and it was about- But Doug, you did something even better than that though. You started the rain very real and intuitively, and what's your, you, were, you think like an actor when you mix. It, it, it was literally, I was going into Kay's head of, right. of what he was feeling There's at the time. There's this beautiful shift. And so it's very delicate and beautiful and you think this is it. It's, it's romance, it's gonna be a beautiful thing. And then he gets the call from work yeah. and the real ring comes back. And, and I don't want anybody to notice that, but I do want him to feel it. But, they, but what's your, what's your favorite, you, you quote it. I wanna quote you because it's such a beautiful idea how you mix, your philosophy of mixing. Well, you've said this to me 20 times. You uh -oh. The way you think like an actor. <laughs> He's on the spot. The way you read a film like an actor. 
Well, I just, I always am, am putting, I travel, I travel through a movie, first of all, through the actors' voices. But the one thing I want to say to people out there in the audience is, is, you know, in terms of sound, in terms of what we do, the people you're listening to talk right now, you know, think, think about what is the sound of your life, you know, as an audience member. What do, you, what do you get up? What do you listen to? What do you like to surround yourself with? And that's what we're doing for yeah. a director or whatnot. We're designing the soundtrack to Kay's life, to this story. So it's much the same. It's analogous with what audience members do in their lives. They're listening to music. They're, they're enjoying sound. It's a very aesthetic thing. Uh, that's what we do in movies. That's so. very much the same sort of guidance that I got from Denis when it came to the sound design should always be, you know, we should be looking at what's going on inside Kay's head via his eyes. There are so many close-up shots of eyes and long, still someone processing something that they're seeing, but we're not seeing what they're seeing. Right. So the sound design was very often um, very internal. Um, uh, he described it as psychoacoustic, which I think is quite a good mm. one. Yeah, psychoacoustic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, which again is, is you know, um, a, a lot of that's coming from the way that the actors are performing and the way that they've been shot by Roger Deakins and a lot of those kind of cues that I was taking for the sound design were literally just, you know, putting yourself inside someone's head and trying to register exactly the emotions that they're going through and designing the sounds around them to reflect that. Yeah. It's a great collaboration between all of us and Clint Bennett, the music editor, yeah. Byron. Byron Wilson, the dialogue editor. Um, that core group of us were on the stage every day throwing ideas around like and just, mentality yeah it was like this subtle thing of like you know a lot of it was intuitive where it was like oh you'd hear someone do something oh that's cool and we would adjust to that and someone would do something else it was a good band yeah. you guys were you guys were all riffing off each other absolutely and Denise well that's good because we've all been on stages where you know it's a little bit of tug of war we didn't have a minute of that. No, and that, it stems from Denis and his no, his vision. And now we here's did. a good example: when when, when uh, Kay goes to Sapper's place, right? We got into this whole Sergio Leone thing with the boiling pot. Now we <laughs> love that idea. But this is at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the very beginning. Right, yeah. Sapper's got his garlic boiling on the pot, and, and it was that whole Sergio Leone thing where it's just sitting there going. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, just kind of providing a little. Tension so we did our first yeah. pass, and it was like we were in love with ourselves. This is the greatest thing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we came back a couple. I love, back I love, a couple I love of days my later. own film references. Right? Yeah. I don't know how somebody phrased it. I don't know how who said it or whatever, but somebody said, uh. You know, I think maybe we can tone that down just a little bit. So we went back, to, we went to reality. We still executed the idea, but we weren't so much in love with ourselves with that. Yeah, I, I want to get back to the previous statement because I think it's so important. Uh, one of the things that Doug and Ron did so beautifully on this film is crafting those dynamics. And I, I'm, I just want to say I, I'm really thrilled about the nomination that we've received from BAFTA and the Academy as well. Because uh, for Blade Runner, because I think it's a recognition of the the subtlety in our use of quiet. I, I think so often our award is easily mistaken, as we joked earlier, as the award for the most sound. That that, that non-sound people think that it's the loud movies that should have that that, that get nominated because it's it, in a way it's just like well that's obvious sound and this is a real acknowledgement that you can do that there's a sophistication at least in the sound community that's subtle 
nuanced work well, is really valuable. But let's be honest. But let's let's be honest because the nominations come from the branch, so this is even within our own community. But that's what I find thrilling. Yeah, I, I'm just acknowledging. It's a shout out to my peers. Thank you very much. I, I just think that that loud movie. I think the the abuse of loudness, which is where Ron and Doug were so sensitive in our film, is is a, a cheap tool when a filmmaker is kind of bereft of ideas. And I don't think, Denis was hypersensitive to that, Ron and Doug were hypersensitive to that, and I think we crafted some, one of the most dynamic tracks, as you guys have well, said, yeah. I that, mean, you guys you'll ever hear. You guys weren't shy. There are some big There's moments big in moments. this film. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the key is big and not painful. When you're pushing people out of the theater with just abrasive, loud sounds, no one really wants to hear that. We went for bigger, more expansive, like epic sounds instead of the harsh, biting things. Um, I'd love to And an immersive thing as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're not going to be listening to a Christmas CD of explosions, let me put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Although, Theo and we have a montage. Can we talk about the montage? We don't have a Christmas CD, but uh, uh, Theo and I created an eight-minute montage of what we think the sort of greatest hits that's a crass way to, I'm sorry, say it, say it for me. I've already ruined, we created an eight-minute montage of what we think are the, the sort of more compelling sound design moments in the film that we've just posted online at... It's, yeah, give a shout out to it. BladeRunner2049sound.com. BladeRunner2049sound.com. If you want to hear the kinds of things that we're talking about, you can go to this link, it's a SoundCloud link, and you can hear the sound in its sort of pristine state. Well, I would love to roll up our sleeves and talk about some sequences if we if yeah, we can um, I, I, so I had the pleasure the, the first time I saw the film was at a Dolby Cinema in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos and it was a, quite a stunning experience and then we watched it up in San Francisco that together. was a stunning experience in, as in good our, as sound reproduction gets we've got a very nice screening room up, sure up, 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 <laughs> up at Dolby World Headquarters in San Francisco uh, and I was really glad to you know when we when we brought Mark up to do an evening with us and, and we ran the film and he he just he, we did a sound check beforehand and, and Mark just said this is the way Denis would like for people to watch this movie which was which was very satisfying but I got the first time I saw the film, the sequence, you know, they're in Vegas and Kay and Deckard are, are fighting in the, 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 the showroom with the malfunctioning holograms. That was the scene that just I completely took my breath away. Like, I just was just so exciting from a sound perspective. So can you talk a little bit about that scene? Because I also understand that that went through a little bit of an evolution. Theo, that's, that's all Theo. <laughs> Well, and Ron and Doug, but I mean, it starts life in the design phase with some really some clever work that Theo and, and Joe did. Uh, and Clint. And Clint as well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it started off as a sequence um, scripted very differently where um, Deckard was sort of using a cacophony of different music to, 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 um, to lose Kay in that sort of, uh, in that arena. That is to say that when we entered that that scene, the first thing we would have is um, Elvis singing, and then it wasn't glitching out. Originally, the idea was you'd have a whole performance running the whole way through the scene. Oh, but on top of that, you know, sort of uh, superimposed on top of Elvis, uh, first Marilyn Monroe singing uh, "Happy Birthday, Mr. President," um, Liberace playing the piano, uh, a Bollywood dance. Troop, a tiger, an elephant. I remember it just, it just got insane. There was like this just more, more, build up more. of yeah. insanity. A cacophony, really. Um, and that's, I mean, in, its sense, in itself is a great idea. Um, it just turned out that when we played the first cut of the film back with that in its original incarnation, it 
first of all, it was visually and sonically confusing, which was sort of the idea. But, uh, you know, visually we were losing where Deckard and Kay were in the room. It was just kind of cluttered. Yeah, so, I mean, um, visually it was it was cluttered because of all of these elements that had been filmed in separate passes. So, to some extent, Joe Walker was then able to look at what he was able to remove. And it was his idea, maybe we have like a broken projector and maybe Elvis is just sort of sporadically appearing around the room. Um, this left us with a problem of, you know, what are we going to do with the sound? And, you know, originally the idea was that uh, we don't really hear anything. We're being, there's this cacophony of music going on. So as with many of these sort of scenes where we weren't quite sure where we were going um, and what we wanted to do with it, Joe passed me a very early version of the scene and just said, see what you can do with this and play with this. Play with this. Um, and so I came up with the idea of, you know, taking the music um, of Elvis and glitching it out in various different ways. So it sounded as if there was something horribly wrong with the projector, which was you know, it, it punctuated an otherwise very silent scene, which was doing something which made it tense and scary. And that was something that had been lost in that first incarnation. It was just, it was like a crazy musical number. And, um, and, and we'd lost the sense of there being a manhunt and we'd lost the sense of Deckard being scared for his life, frankly. So um, suddenly pitching them in the silence and being able to hear Kay's breath and, and, and Deckard's footsteps, and then suddenly you've got like a blast of Elvis glitching yeah. out in front of you. It, it restored that sense of, you know, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going to happen next. It's disorienting it's and really eerie disorienting. and very But then unsettling. we're also in silence and dark. And, and so I kind of, you know, we get the license to play with what might be there, what we're not seeing. And um, that, that was the idea, I think, that le led to, well, we don't know what the mechanism is that's supposedly able to go around the room and project these holograms around the place. So I love those little clips maybe, and relays. And yeah, I mean, it's the idea of having, you know, hidden malfunctioning machinery in, in, in the roof making bizarre sounds that, you know, it's just disorientation yeah. um, and, uh, and punctuating the silence. And then suddenly a gunshot kind of next to Kay's head. And uh, so, yeah, we got to re really reshape a scene whilst uh, we were still in the very first cut of the film. Um, and I think up until that point, Denis was considering that that scene might have to 
get cut out of the movie because it, it just tonally was and my yeah, favorite scene in the film. People will say it's one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah, so it's, effective. It's a kind of carte blanche to do something interesting with sound when you've got uh, you know something that's effectively a dark room with two scared people in it. <laughs> Except for that walk in the desert, it might be one of the most dynamic scenes in terms of quiet to loud in the entire film, and it caps. I think, I think what's one of the things that's interesting about it. By the end of that scene, it caps about a 12-minute run of no dialogue and no music. It is sound design from, yeah. from the first boom in the walk in the desert till, you know, you, you could argue the, the blast of music inside the... Yeah. And, and no dialogue. We get a little... There's just a few words exchanged between Kay right. and, and Deckard, right. and then, it's the, then they're into this sort of... That's, that's, a, that's brave filmmaking. Yeah, it is. That's right. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, Talk to me a little bit. L.A. and 2049 is almost, you know, it's it's a very important character in this film, just as L.A. and 2019 was in the first Blade Runner. But how did you guys approach what L.A. sounds like in 2049? What were the elements of that? Well, I think there was this great idea that came from Denis, which is one of the establishing ideas. Um, really, that there are different levels to the city. You know, if you're down on the ground level, um, perhaps you're getting sort of cheaper accommodation, and, and it's you live just in a hovel. it's yeah, it's basically it's um, it's pretty dystopian. It's pretty. Uh... <laughs> Wait, do you live on the ground level? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I live in downtown LA, so okay, okay. so you're already luxury. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the noisy part. <laughs> we get introduced to that pretty early on in the film. You see Kay walking home um, uh, from the police station after his first baseline test. And he's being bombarded with kind of, you know, there are projected adverts on the sides of buildings. There's sure. kind of, we have a few throwbacks to the original film where we kind of, we're talking about the off-world colonies and the, yeah, and the commercial right. that's overhead. And, uh, and you know, it's grim and it's, it's really un an unpleasant world. Denis' idea was that as we go sort of further up in, in Officer Kay's uh, apartment block, things start to quieten down. We hear perhaps just a few different um, advertising things outside his apartment. But then when we go up to the very top of his building for that sequence in the rain with joy, um, we start to hear, uh, it's almost as if there's a, a sort of tranquilizing message being broadcast through that, throughout the city. There was this wonderful um, recording that um, Byron and I did of a Korean speaker saying a, a sort of a prayer mantra and a, a sort of meditation speech mm. in very slow, kind of tranquilized Korean. And, um, and, and that's one of the things that um, Doug and that. Ron blended beautifully into that sort of cityscape that we, we see as we get sort of open out into that shot on the roof. So the idea being that almost the, the further you go up in the city, perhaps you're getting to a, a you know, you kind of, um, you have a, a level of peace up further away from the crowd. Um, and that's something I think that really helped define just topographically where we are in the city at any time. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's kind of a hellhole down on, uh, on ground level. Mm -hmm. Which is like BD's bar would be. You know, yeah. Like that was like the most intense area where there was, you know, a total polyglot, a total, so many different languages. You know, I mean, you name it, it's in there, Russian and, you know, everything. Um, so they, all the billboards were different languages, the holograms, and it was like planned chaos. We would go through that scene and you would, we would focus in on a certain one. There was an ad that was a big hologram and you'd hear that predominantly, but you'd still hear other things around you. And as you'd spin and move, they would all move off and another one would come up. And we just kept layering that and 
picking and choosing which ones fit properly so that it was still dense, but it was it was just chaos. You know, you, all, like, all based on executing the themes of that Denis was doing of what it means to be human. You know, what's an authentic human being? That's the, all those things. You know, the lower level, the upper level. It's all supporting that and developing it. So. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, but that's really interesting. And then and then I did want to ask you guys that this sort of naturally leads into it. Sort of probably one of the highest levels in Los Angeles is is Wallace's yeah. space, and that acoustically has a very distinct sound. Can you talk about about how you guys constructed um, and also how you handled dialogue in that space? Ronald can, has did some amazing work with dialogue there, and he and Max should take that. But all of Wallace's space consisted of or is underpinned by these designed kind of musical architecture in the spirit of the first Blade Runner, um, just to create this kind of Zen feeling of calm and... Um, and you had so much, there was so many interesting visual elements for you guys to play off on as well, because there, obviously water was very important. Yeah. As in every scene, there's, you know, Roger Deakins practical lighting effects. We, we use those for, for, for inspiration for a lot of these musical, you know, one of them, that, those kind of shimmering, whatever those reflections were that Roger created was the first inspiration for me to go to um, bells and chimes to create the first layer of what would be these musical underpinnings to all of those scenes. And that I thought was the musical embodiment of what I was seeing visually. And that's what you hear in the large water room when uh, uh, we meet Neander Wallace and uh, uh, Love comes in and the various other scenes when you're in that room. Then we go to uh, the replicant birth room uh, that has another layer of those uh, processed uh, musical chimes, as well as because it was a birth room, it has the sounds of my firstborn in the womb. So there are these sort of <laughs> prenatal sounds that mm -hmm. um, kind of undergird that scene as well. But And, and Theo, I know in uh, Love's Office, there's some beautiful things that you did that were those very musical kind of um, shimmering bits. I don't. I never knew what you made those from. That's right. Well, they're sort of synthesized shimmers in... in um, don't tell them the answer. <laughs> <laughs> secret. Um, top secret. But yeah, I mean, I think it was that, that idea of having a sort of a Zen space that in, in many ways is at odds with, a, you know, the, the evil character that Wallace obviously is. He's, um, someone pointed out to me that, you know, the, the entire Wallace headquarters are um, lined with wood. And wood has become this incredibly precious thing in Blade Runner 2049. When, when uh, Kay brings that little wooden horse to... Um, uh, I've forgotten the name of uh, Doc Badger. Dr. Badger. Um, um, you know, he says that he can get him a real horse with this. You know, there's just the price of the wood. So the idea that Wallace's headquarters are, are kind of lined with this incredibly expensive wood material um, made me think of, you know, it's it's like a like a Japanese Zen bathhouse that he's living in. So. We were trying to create these sort of Zen textures. Every now and then, we went slightly <laughs> off too far into what they call scented candle. <laughs> I had experimented with processed shakuhachis, and Joe, I think, commented, "I feel like I'm in a bathhouse." Or something. Yeah, so we took those out. Massage, <laughs> a massage parlor. And then, the, and then the way you handle dialogue in that space is very specific. Yeah, we try to come up with a very unique atmospheric element that keyed off of the dialogue to be able to put you in that environment. 
it's, it's easy to just put a big reverb on it and call it good. And it was like, okay, that's great. But Mark and I actually developed a, a plugin uh, early on uh, that we really wanted to use in this film. And it was very much in the beta state, but, mm-hmm. but we were working with them during the final, even trying to get it to work and, and be able to utilize it. And uh, it allowed us to have, uh, it was a decorrelated return of 37 different channels of reverb that's all doing different things subtly and you we would place each one of those in an object so you look at the dolby ping pong ball the the atmos renderer yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) it just goes lights up there's all these balls and that's all dialogue it's all from dialogue wow 37 channels of reverb return dedicated to 37 objects but ron did a gorgeous job of filling that space and putting neander's voice whenever we're in those Wallace rooms. Yeah, I also used a delay and some other things that that would ripple and and uh, you know tail off, you know, in a, in a unique way that didn't become distracting, but you felt like, wow, this guy is like the voice of God in there. That you know, mm. and I will point out as a shout out to Mac. He he gave us beautiful tracks with a mm. boom mic that I don't always get. I'm always trying to go between lav and boom. He gave me such great tracks that he allows you to do that because there's a clarity involved. If you have this ball of noise in the center and you put reverb and delay, it just is a mess. So a a big props to Mac for that because uh, that allowed us to really create that sense. You know, when his voice hits and then there's nothing, you know, shout out to Mac. Well, that's a part of his sort of purest... Mac, come back with that, what that great quote was, your purest approach to always having a boom, which gives the reality of the space. You take it, Mac. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, you know, you can, you can fake good sound. Sound is our, the first sense that we experience in the womb, and it's the thing that's our most internalized. Uh, it's the thing, it's our safety sense. It, it, it is what it is. When you start to cheat it, is when it starts to throw everything out of whack and, and it raises questions. So uh, again, it was just purely organic and we really focused on the core value of, of the performance of the actor and, and, and getting it. And I, being, being able to do that, being part of a team that saw the value in that was a, a great privilege. You know, a shout out to Mac and to Ron, especially because I think all too often with these kind of tentpole movies, the production sound and the sound of the dialogue is kind of the last priority. You know, the big noisy movies, the explosions and the sound effects are great and the music is bombastic and dialogue kind of gets left behind. But I think our film is uniquely spectacular and how beautiful and pristine and sonorous our dialogue is. I think that's really rare in these kinds of movies. And that's a testament to what Mac delivered to us as Raw Tracks what Byron Wilson, our dialogue supervisor, created and what Ron did in the mix. How you much never a- see that. How much ADR is there in the film? Not, Very little. Not that much. <laughs> Only stuff that we changed for expository reasons. It wouldn't have been for technical. We did, I don't think we looped anything for technical reasons. Really? So if it's looped, it was for performance? For, for change of text, for change of For change of, right, yeah. yeah. That's, that's astonishing. It is. Mac, that's, yeah. that's astonishing. We all bow. You will hear my well, that's fantastic. Well, you uh, you brought up Dolby Atmos, so I would I'm, uh, I, it it was, and you guys have all worked in Atmos before, uh, and and you've had a lot of time to play with the format. Um, 
how was it specifically useful for this film and for an audience who may be fortunate enough to have Dolby Atmos in a home theater, what would you have them listen listen for in the You know what I love about it the most is it scenes that are more sparse mm-hmm. really show off Atmos and these immersive formats. It's the everyone thinks it's the big, you know, car chase, you know, Spaceship gun battle, whatever, you know, big action scene. The more dense your track is, the less point source you really realize what's going on. And it, it's not as clear. It's just everywhere and it's loud and you're like, okay, what happened? It's scenes like that Wallace scene or others, like the baseline test. We had the interviewer guy that was, you know, really oppressive on K. He's primarily in the overhead on the ceiling. I mean, he's everywhere with his, you know, reverb and other things like that. But his direct signal is up on top of you to be very oppressive and claustrophobic was the whole idea. You can't do that with other formats. The important thing to remember, too, here is that with with Dolby Atmos, the cart is not in front of the horse, uh, so to speak. And by that, I mean that if you're a minimalist, if you're an action director, whatever, you can bring whatever your idea is to Atmos, and it's going to serve that well. It's just a great sounding format. It's not a format that's saying you must do this, you must do that. You can do whatever you want. It's just a complete creative tool. It's, it's wide open, and it sounds... I, I think, uh, following up on what Ron said, our, our biggest successes are in the quiet scenes because they're so immersive. And I think there's this psychoacoustic reason why that's valuable. It allows you to create a, a sonic reality that helps the audience suspend disbelief. The more you can immerse an, an audience into a sound environment that feels real um, without gimmick the sooner they sign off on what they're seeing. So I think we did much more, especially Doug, uh, in terms of the sound effects of creating environments that enveloped us by using objects and surrounds and overheads to just place you in a reality, never to be gimmicky or to deflect your attention from the front of the screen. I think that's where we were really an area where we were really when, successful. When Atmos first came out, because I remember when it first came out, people were getting really confused because... They were intellectualizing too much about it. What, it. But as soon as you sit down and start using it, it just becomes, if you're an intuitive artist or whatever, it just is obvious. It just works. It's just a beautiful. I think that one of the things that kind of surprised me, and I think surprised a lot of people here at Dolby, you know, you, you, you develop these tools and then you unleash them on the world and you put them in the hands of artists. You really never know what's going to happen after that. <laughs> no, you don't. But one of the things that, uh, uh, you know, I remember it was actually Life of Pi was one of the first mixes that I, I heard people talk about this. And they they said, um, and it was Eugene Garrity that was talking with about it. And he said, you know, uh, we were pretty conservative about it on the sound design and sound effects side. But it was the music department that really immediately understood the, composer, the possibilities. The composer, very much so. Michael Dana was all over that. I We first experimented with it before he showed up and I had done a pass on the whole film, experimenting, pushing things around. I'm like, oh, this would be cool if we put the choir up behind us and right. we put this and we really spaced it out and did some really cool things with depth, you know, that I was never able to do. And especially in like any action scenes, you could pull the music off the screen and allow more space for that to happen. And it allows this great depth of field, if you will. Yeah, because you can, you can pull the score just into the first set of speakers off the screen. Absolutely. Yeah, because really obviously, obviously stereo image changes with dynamics and changes with sound density. So as you get more dynamic, more sound pressure level, your, your imagery narrows. So what Ron is saying essentially is you can really recreate a wide 
stereo image. And I, I, I got to tell you a, a funny thing. Ang Lee asked me once, uh, we were showing him Atmos, and he said, uh, Doug, why don't they put speakers in the floor? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I, said <laughs> I said, because, Ang, people spill their damn Cokes on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, all right. But I'll tell you, when uh, after we did that first pass, uh, I was a little nervous because that's something really new, and it was definitely bold for what you've ever heard before. And Michael Dana came in and sat down and just lit up. He's like, this is amazing. Can we do more of this? Can we put this back there? And I'm like, well, I did. I'll, I'll accentuate it more. And we, we just hit it off so well. It was like, yeah, let's do that. Let's do this. Let's move the chimes over here. You know, it was all sorts of stuff. He loved it. So we even pushed it a little further with him. So I was pretty happy about that. Um, Ron did some amazing stuff with the music in the Atmos environment. I remember, it turns out that Dolby keeps track of how much data you use for objects. That's, that's a known number. And our Of Dolby, course we do. <laughs> and I was told by our Dolby rep that the, our film had used more data than any other film. Now, wait a minute, let me, let me finish this. This is important because this is not my way of saying we're bigger and better than everybody else because that's not where I'm going with this. What's important to recognize is that very little of that data was used uh, in sound effects. It was, and it, because he said this, he says, it's the amount of spread that, Ron, because Ron had all these, this amazing separation, in almost every music cue, Ron had every speaker with something special in it from the score. And that's what was enveloping the audience. And I think gave us this incredible sense of immersion without saying, oh, isn't it cool we put the explosion over there or the spinner passed by, because, Denis had actually said to us, I don't like sounds in the surrounds. And we had to be very cautious of that because he's very aware as a filmmaker that the movie's up in front of us. He doesn't want to distract by no, putting No, if you have to stop and think, I mean, film's happening, happening in 90 feet a minute. If you have to stop and think about why that sound was, you've, you've taken the audience yeah. out of the film. And you know, the last thing you want is, you know, you hear a sound, you go, what? You know, you're supposed to be paying attention to the film. So what's the process for you? And you can talk about it with Denis, but, but you know, when you have a director who hasn't worked in Atmos before, how do you kind of lead them well, into it? It's a, again with Aang, he said uh, he was very concerned about having to about g being given a mandate for what he must do as a creative person. And I said, no, it's simply a house. You decorate it any way you see fit. It's your home. Decorate it how you see fit. That's my approach. Everyone on the team was aware of the sensibility about what our soundtrack should feel like, and you know, again, a testament to the the sensitivity and the and the the acumen of Ron and Doug. Um, Denis came in for the first playback of Real One, as a director will do, and loved everything that he heard. So these guys had intuited very, very uh, uh, profoundly what our mission was and delivered an Atmos mix that was exactly what he wanted. Denise's vision was so apparent to us in the story and visually and what was going on. We locked into that right away and it, it really stems from him and what he put out there. We take that and then do what we do, but it's an important point that it really comes from him. And to, <laughs> uh, just to give you a good example of how direct he is, right? He's a sweet, kind, dear, thoughtful person, but he does not compromise. We were at the seawall at the end, and it's a scene where Kay is saying, you know, <laughs> go, go, see, go see your daughter to Deckard. 
And Denise said to me, um, Doug, the seawall sounds uh, a little bit too much Blue Lagoon. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know what that means. No, I know what that means. <laughs> I, get, I get it. I get it. So, you know, and I laughed. I said, thanks. That I totally understand what you're going for. So we put more of the dystopian Blade Runner grit world back in that. Interesting. Scene. But that's the need. <laughs> yeah. That one sentence, I knew exactly what That's it, the direction what it, you get from him. It's exactly. so profound and so short you know it's amazing and specific oh very specific and but it un- always came from a story emotional standpoint yeah. Denis would never give us a granular note lower the door close or raise the spaceship he would always say after playing a reel this is what I felt right yes and from that we could he was talking to you as an artist would yeah. and two other artists beautiful yeah, yeah every time I mean we'd always talk about a character or an emotional content or something that was a feel thing it was always about that Never about little details. Although, I, again, a testament to Doug's deft mixing, in spite of his uh, exhortation for us to not put things in the surrounds, he became quite proud of Doug's panning of the spinner. As well, right? <laughs> he actually yeah, brags about that, yeah. it in an interview, which I never thought I'd hear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Something in the surrounds. Right. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I love so much about Denis, it's like we're at the end of the movie, we've been working very hard, and he's been working incredibly hard for a long time, and we're... Denis, what are you going to do? What, what, what are your plans? And he said, I want to go home. I want to go in the kitchen and dice some carrots. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he relaxed. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, any final thoughts? Any, any, anything you, that we didn't cover that you'd like to? Uh... Yeah. Um, one of the best compliments that I've gotten, that we have gotten, um, was said to me at the end of, I, didn't, I don't think I told you this, but after our, our little seminar at, after the Academy screening with Denis and Joe, uh, a, a member of the audience came up to me and he said, I loved the sound of this movie. It feels like one soundtrack. And then he said, and I heard things I didn't see. And that, that, that phrase has really resonated to me because I think that's kind of part of the success of what we achieved in sound in this film is that we, we thought of it more as a painting, not a coloring book. Uh, too often what we do is seen as the sound person puts in the sounds that are missing, just like you'd color in between the lines in a coloring book. Or, or literally cover something that's visually that's, represented. It's, it's diegetic, right. to use an awfully academic term. What I think we all achieved is we colored way outside the lines. We were constantly using sound to create a, a universe. A, we built worlds uh, for things that you didn't see to be constantly informing the audience. I, I, I'm really proud of that. And I think it was, it was Joe Walker who said, you know, if you close your eyes, you can hear the story. Beautiful. Yeah, I didn't hear that. That's great. That's great. Well, I do have one question I had for you guys. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a tough race this year. This is five really amazing films that have been nominated. But I'm curious for you guys, you know, I love all, you know, amazing work in all the films, but um, what, you know, what else was out there this year that really impressed you guys? Maybe that didn't, that get, a wasn't nom- nominated? That didn't get a nomination. This is going to sound whacked, but I thought all the money in the world sounded fantastic. A movie you wouldn't expect 
to be something about sound, but the detail work in it was really beautiful. And like Wind River, I thought it was a beautiful. Wind piece River of work. sounded great. Wind yeah. River, huh? And then there's an, another movie that's like very sparse. You know, you wouldn't think of it as a sound movie, but you look at what they did. And it was Alan Murray who told that story. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm always impressed by the small movies. Three Billboards, I yeah. thought, sounded fantastic in its simplicity. The right, simple choices, the right choices, deft mixing. Just t and it all sounded like nice, fresh, original things, not library sound. That's great. It's a, it's a wonderful year. It's, it's an amazing year. I feel like we're kind of in a really interesting time for sound work. I think it's, it's, well, and that's, it's a that, really fertile time right now. That's the one thing I did want to say out there to the folks is, is thank you to the people that love sound. You're here. <laughs> thank you very much. Absolutely. For appreciating it. Well, obviously, you know, you, you five are nominated, but there were a lot of people working with you on these tracks. Uh, who, who would you like to give a shout out to on your, on your teams? Uh, definitely Byron Wilson and Clint Bennett, Del Spiva, yeah. and uh, uh, Ryan. Yeah, um, in music. Tom, Tom Burns. Thank you, Tom. Um, our crew, uh, Theo and I, worked with uh, some very gifted sound editors, um, Chris Odd, uh, Lee Gilmore, Greg Ten Bosch, um, Elliot Connors, Charlie Campagna, who did a lot of field recording for us, um, Ezra Dweck, our Foley editor, um, and David Whitehead, who did uh, some amount of the early design work with these musical textures for us as well. Charlie did all kinds of stuff. Yeah. We, yeah. We came, he came over to our house and we recorded uh, uh, <laughs> Love Being Drowned in My Hot Tub. It wasn't That's her, right. it was another actress. <laughs> so I mean, we did all kinds of stuff, you know, at home and, you know, coming up with cool sounds. And yeah. Charlie was a yeah, big he, he, part he, of that. He made some of those musicals, some did these amazing distorted guitar textures that were used for Kay's Nightmare or Charlie's. Yeah. And I, I got to say one of the more moving moments for, for us was at the end of the at the end of the film we screened it for uh, Ms. Yorkin. Oh, and yeah. She, and she was she was really moved by it. That that meant a lot to all of us. That was a big deal. This was Bud Yorkin's wife? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. she was in, she was very moved by the finished film. That's she was great. so emotional when the lights came up and we looked over like, "Whoa, that that was hmm. So heartfelt. I, I've never experienced something like that on a playback. It really affected her. She's talking about 30 years of trying to get this movie done and, and finished. She finally gets to see it and just loved everything about it. it that was really worth it right there. That's great. Mac, you have anybody you want to acknowledge? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I have to, it all starts on the floor uh, through my guys. My, my longtime boom operator of 15 years, George Mihai, uh, my very best guys, uh, Balaj Varga and Aaron Havashi. Um, I couldn't do it without these guys. Um, absolutely fantastic work uh, on the floor. And uh, so thanks for that. I, I need one more shout out. Um, Ron and Doug and I are very lucky to be um, employed by a very progressive sound company known as Formosa Group in Hollywood. And without that kind of support, you know, uh, creatively and um, technically to keep us all functioning, uh, we, we can't do what we do. So shout out to yeah. the, yeah, Bob and Matt from Formosa Group especially. Great. Thank you. Well, we're gonna wrap up here. Um, we've been talking today with uh, the 
team from Blade Runner 2049 uh, nominated in both the sound editing and the sound mixing categories. So Mark Mangini, Theo Green, Ron Bartlett, Doug Hemphill, and Mac Ruth, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. you. It's great. This thank is, you very much. This is Glenn Kaiser uh, signing off from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Thanks for listening.